Uh, sure thing. <coughs> Absolutely. And I... <coughs> Come on, Fro. <coughs> we should open Where with that clip. Where the fuck did this... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that'll get new listeners. <laughs> the, uh... Is that the objective? <laughs> Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We are... Tonight's entertainment. Good? Yes, I know who I am. Did IQs just drop shot? I could have been. I have plans. I like this All shit. Is. Oh, oh, it will. It was exciting. Dance off, bro. It is your Me destiny. Welcome to the Atlantic Screen Connection podcast. Hello and welcome to the Atlantic Screen Connection podcast with Jason and Lee. I'm Jason. I'm Lee. And this week we are kicking off season four of Atlantic mm. SC. This was your idea. Uh, I was. Yes. I was. I wasn't. I wasn't put on the spot or anything like that. I know that Chelsea Williford is listening attentively because she says, "I know, Jason. I'm going to hate you during that episode." But anyway. Yeah, so uh, you 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 talked to me about this because you you know I'm yeah. not a, you know I'm not a fan. You know I'm not a fan of Whiplash. Yeah, I had recently I recently rewatched Whiplash because uh, man, it was like it was when I first started talking to you about two years ago, hmm. and uh, I don't know when it came up. It came up, but it has come up a couple of times. You've just made short notices of I don't like Whiplash, hmm. and at the time I had seen it two years prior. And, uh, and I had really liked it. I really dug it. But when you were saying you didn't like it, and for reasons that seemed solid and, and hard to debate, I was like, I'm not going to take him up on this without fucking, <laughs> without fucking rewatching it and knowing what the, I don't know enough about films to be like, yeah, well, actually, asshole, you know, you don't, you don't know good films when you see them. Uh, but, uh, you now I feel that time Star has come. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. What's your name? Andrew Naiman, sir. You know who I am? Yes, sir. So you know I'm looking for players? Yes, sir. Just do your best. You're here for a reason. You believe that, right? I'm here for a reason. Little trouble there. You're rushing. Uh, ready? Okay. Five, six, and... Were you rushing or were you dragging? I, I don't know. If you deliberately sabotage my band, I will gut you like a pig. Oh, my dear God. Are you one of those single-tier people? His opinion means a lot to you, doesn't it? Yeah. I push people beyond what's expected of them. I believe that is an absolute necessity. You won't be able to give me the time of day because you have bigger things to pursue. That's exactly my point. You are a worthless, friendless piece of shit whose mommy left daddy and who is now weeping and slobbering all over my drum set like a nine-year-old girl. Start practicing harder, Neiman. Why would you let him get away with what he did to you? Because I want to be great. Are you a rusher? Or are you a dragger? Or are you going to be on my time? Going to be on your time. Keep playing! Keep playing! Keep playing! Uh, yeah, but I, I rewatched it um, this month. And I thought... Man, I still really like this film. I, I I think it's I think it does a lot of things really well, and it's interesting because now I want to I, I want to talk to Jason about it hmm. and find out why he doesn't like it. You know, find out what it is about the film that that irks him. Now, I, I'm going to listen to everything that you have to say about it. I, I rewatched <laughs> it as well. I had to watch it in two installments because the first hour was was painful. Um, but I mean, listen. I have to preface this by saying that I don't think this is a bad film, okay? I don't think it's a bad film. I actually think it's a very good film. The things that I don't like about it are things that I just seem to not be able to get past. And they take me out of the mm. movie so much that I start looking around and I'm like, oh, this is getting on my nerves. This irks me. Yeah, like you would say. That seems fair. 
Yeah. And so, I mean, I'm not saying that Chazelle's an amateur. I mean, he, he's got a good eye. You know, Whiplash's script is pretty damn good, man. It's solid. You know, I yeah. like the exchanges that are in there and all that stuff. So, that's good. There's just a few things during the film that, that take me out of it because I'm like, okay, what is he trying to say with this? And usually I'm not too bad at figuring out, you know, using what, what, what the language is to yeah. kind of go. I'll even, to, I'll be fair and preface that the things that I think the film tackles really, really well. I, I couldn't tell you if it was intentional, you know? Okay. That's that's what I mean. So when, I, when I'm going to... I'm going to sing some praises here at some point from a very particular um, point of view, which is when we're talking about exceptionalism. I mm. think the film does really good at tackling that topic. But I will be very careful not to give, like, a huge amount of credit and say that's what they were going for or that's what they're trying to get at. It might have just coincidentally ticked all the right boxes and became, like, a perfect little analogy i wouldn't be surprised if the intention was almost the opposite uh i will get into it but i wouldn't be surprised if she was actually trying to make this something of a of a flattery piece to the hard-working white man in jazz or you know (laughs) or uh or the uh an ode to the dream worth dying for you know okay and i think the film's praises lie in the opposite effect in that it is a haunting insider peek at something that is just fucking terrible now i the one thing that i was going to bring to the table is i was going to read you my review of of what i had done when i put the review back in 2014 yeah just when i had started film faculty at that point but anyway so what i'll do is i'll kick off my review and then after that i want you to get into your things and then i'll tell you a little bit of how this will contain some of the negative things that I have, and I can touch on those yeah, a little bit you, after. Yeah, you can, you can update as we go along. That'll yeah. be great. All right, so here's the review, the initial review that I had written back in the day. Andrew Neiman, Miles Teller, a socially inept music student, wants to become the world's preeminent drummer. Dr. Terrence Flesher, J.K. Simmons, a tyrannical conductor at the Schaefer Conservatory of New York, is determined to unlock Andrew's potential no matter the cost. That's a pretty good summary. Yeah. Uh, director Damien Chazelle shows faith in his screenplay as well as his actors. Both Teller and Simmons are impressive and, as Andrew F- and Fletcher, respectively, not only because of the confidence they have in each other, but also because the dialogue is colorful, rich, and sharp. But what begins as an intimate look at what it takes to be the best at the Shaver Conservatory shifts into a kitsch rendition of the cliché that takes blood, sweat, and tears to succeed motif. <laughs> Andrew's perseverance, dedication, and an obsessive need to please Fletcher reach farcical heights when not even a full-on car collision stops andrew from making it to a recital or a competition i think in this case uh. (laughs) um the film relies on its score to push the action forward the music is beautiful every jazz piece played will have you bobbing your head and tapping your feet fletcher is the driving character uh the character driving the music and as such much of the attention is directed towards him and his honing of the band's sound so much so that the intensity of andrew's practicing gets pushed to the background and that's a problem the film is supposed to be about andrew's burning ambition to be the most prolific jazz drummer in history yet fletcher's gunnery sergeant hartman like intensity and cruelty tower over any emotional connection the audience is supposed to make with andrew fletcher himself is akin to the shark from jaws anytime the music kicks in the audience finds itself in anticipation as to who's going to get violently chewed up next Mm. the main problem however is the filmmaking Because the band is stationary, Chazelle decides that he must move the camera around to create the impression of action. The camera travels from left to right, from uh, right to left, as though it was swaying with the music, but the whole affair simply comes off as amateurish at best. Whoops. (laughs) Put the camera down. (laughs) As I said, put the camera down and let the music and performances speak for themselves. Uh, Moreover, the editing is absolutely horrendous. It's hyperbole. Moving from tight shots to establishing shots back to medium shots to farther away establishing shots is terrible. The band is in a concert hall, something that does not need to be reestablished many times during a scene. The end sequence's use of establishing shots is to evoke the grandeur of what's being played on the stage, the resonance, so to speak, but the editing makes the director's camera work look sloppy or vice versa. The duel between Andrew and Fletcher is at the heart of the film, and by the time film the film reaches its climax, intimate shots would be more appropriate the remainder of the band is there to show uh for show uh and the film cuts away to them too often uh than is necessary the audience must listen to them because they have to not because they want to what started off as a short film should have stayed a short film but for what it means all i can say to everyone involved is good job that was my initial review 
<laughs> of Whiplash. Cutting. <laughs> so that was my initial impression of... And now there's hyperbole in there. Uh, and I do think that on the second watch, it is more Andrew's story than it is uh, Fletcher's yeah. story. I, I, I noticed was, that this time. I disagree with you there. Yeah. It is absolutely... I mean, I, I do, I, I love the description of, um, of, of Fletcher as, uh, as the shark from Jaws. Jaws. I think that's <laughs> fucking perfect. And like in Jaws, sometimes you get sort of so caught up in when and where the shark is going to get you that you forget to pay attention to the story about the guys in the fucking boat, you know? Yeah. I think, so I think that is a pretty apt comparison. I think. A lot of what people love about Jaws today is because they've seen Jaws two, three, four times, mm-hmm. and they can pick out all the pieces they love. But audiences just wanted to see a shark story, and people who see Whiplash just want to see a story about a guy fucking chairs across a room at a kid's head. <laughs> <laughs> all right, fair enough. So, um, generally, do you feel much inclined to agree with your 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 past self? Because uh, I don't think that you were you were. Too far. I I I do disagree with um. I, well, you you pointed out yourself the hyperbole of the sort of editing and camera work. I do think that he does a pretty good job. This is this is. I think this is where the the my the first sour taste I had in my mouth was the opening. Sure. Um, I like the prologue. I like the prologue very much because it's quiet. You know, the <laughs> thing is, is that you have this shot from the hallway. Uh, where we're we're kind of not necessarily getting into uh, Andrew's intimate space. Mm-hmm. He's in his bubble, and I, I appreciate that. Whenever you're watching a, a film about uh, you know perseverance or anything like that, I like that aspect of it where we're just going to give that person space, and then we're going to slowly kind of creep in to get a little bit more of that person's point of view, what they're actually striving for. Mm-hmm. The funny thing is, is that by putting us in that spot, and then after that having a reverse shot of Fletcher, I was like, does that mean that we're Fletcher throughout? How, how, how masochistic are we going to be using that language? It's like, okay, we're, we're the audience, but is, is Fletcher also part of the audience? Is he watching this guy grow up? Somewhat, but we kind of have to guess, okay, well, I mean, if he's in the hallway and we're in the hallway, then we're kind of coming at this from the same perspective. Mm-hmm. And so I thought that was a little bit of a weird thing for me. Mm-hmm. Now, it fades to black. And then after that, we see him kind of just leaving the school and walking around town. Mm. And then you'll have jazz playing over it. We went from a very, very intimate type of situation where we're starting to understand that this guy is going to be practicing quite a bit, very quiet. And then then it becomes bombastic almost immediately. And we're cutting into a city that's basically nothing. We're seeing these windows, quick cuts. Everything is trying to be punctuated along with, like, like the camera's trying to dance with the city and the music at the same time. And I'm like, how do we go from that to that? Is that what jazz is? Is that what we're trying to get from it? And to me, the opening sequence should have been a much quieter opening sequence so that we could stay with Andrew and get a little bit more into his headspace. Mm-hmm. The thing is, is that is jazz playing continuously in his head? Perhaps. And maybe that's what they were trying to evoke. But for me, it was jarring as hell. I couldn't get into that because once I was like, okay, this is going to be shaped like a Western. Oh, no, we're going this way. <laughs> and I was like, the fuck? I thought it was just going to be you against that guy, which is a very intimate film. And that at the same time, when I, when I, I saw these shots of the city camera, you know, panning left and right or craning up and down. And then we'll have these, these shots like from low angles showing the, mm. the thing. And you have a Dutch tilt shot in there to show like, you know, that accentuate whatever brass was playing at that moment in time and all that. And we completely lose where Andrew is in that picture. We kind of see him walking around a little bit. I didn't notice if he had headphones on him. I just felt like it was filler. Right. And then it brings me to the end of the film as well, where he was actually using those establishing shots again, pulling out and all that to kind of emphasize what's being played. But at the same time, why? Why are we using those shots when we know that the movie from the get-go, from the beginning of the film is between two individuals? Uh, yeah. And I was like, so that, that, that fucked with me a little bit because everything in between I was kind of okay with, mm. I, I, but there are so these many... moments where it pulls out and it make it it, it it seems like the story is trying to say too many different types of things. Well, it's because it's like the, Chazelle is saying it's not about them; it's about the music. And then he says, "No, it's about them." And then, "No, no, it's about the music." Well, and then it's about them. I get what you. Co- I get where you're coming from with that. I, 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 I disagree. Okay. Just for the fact that I I feel that you can still point to these moments. As, as references to where Neiman is in each point in time, you know? I do get the idea. I, it does sense a mixed imagery, I, I suppose. 
by setting up this immediate binary, then expanding. And it's funny because this is something that actually happened in Baby Driver, and people will have a very similar jarring moment when the world expands beyond the chase scenes. That, that jarred with people a lot at the moment where we see Baby Driver getting the coffees out in the town. Yeah. And, and he's swinging around and dancing to his own beat and it's like, oh, so what, what are we, you know, it, it puts people off. It's like, I thought we were having a heist movie there a second ago. What's mm-hmm. with the, uh, what's Why with are this, we in the musical this character musical? Yeah, exactly. You know, so it's actually the exact same thing that happens because yep. it, it is opening up a little more of the elements, maybe agreeably at, at something of like a bad time, maybe just like sending too fast a signal too quick after setting a very strong opening, you know. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. I think that can be off-putting. I, I do think what's very clever about the way that he frames with those those sort of slanted shots and uh, of, of the scenery and stuff like that is not be, not to talk about like the, the, the world of jazz and stuff like that, you know. I don't think that's yeah. at all. I think this, you were right a little bit there. Uh, Andrew Neiman's head... This is the music he hears and the world is informed by. But what you're seeing with those jazz shots, actually very particular, I think, is that what we're getting is a very slanted view that kind of looks like, you know, like jazz art. You ever see, you know, that kind of modernist kind of take on on building structure, architecture? You know, you ever see that, like, the the huge strokes, the colors, the the contrasting colors, the the symmetrical slanted architecture? You you usually... But that's that's, that's the kitschy shit, man. But no, but that's... I'm not talking like this. I'm not saying from that you're supposed to go, oh, the world is made of jazz. But I'm saying we're still (laughs) with this character, you know? And he sees the world, like, influenced by jazz. So when he's walking through this town and it sways to the architecture, it's because that's how he pictures it all. The world is jazz to him. I don't think, weirdly, you know, because... And it's it's a fair point. It's fair, wary criticism because... If you watch La La Land, Chazelle's next film, it is exactly that problem. It is the world is made of music. There is no character inside. There is no uh, pointed, uh, inspired story coming from people. It's two people living in a world that is this romantic. And it is this wonderful feud from certain lights. Uh, But this is just, to me, an interior story. Now, it does, yes, perhaps set up uh, Fletcher very strongly as this negative and i think that's important because of uh the great binary it's going to create but i i do believe that we are supposed to be with neiman throughout and his thoughts that bounce between audience to fletcher to landscapes as he moves to jazz music in his head it all feels like this is supposed to be with him now even if he's not there you know uh, we are supposed to be seeing what he's thinking about. And when he's playing and we zone in on Fletcher, I'm like, he's thinking about Fletcher. I get that. And like I said, to me, the main issue that I had with it, and I'm going to double down on this, is the fact that the first <laughs> shot of the film is from the hallway, which is Fletcher's perspective. Right. And then after that, we shift in, we see Neiman's perspective. This is a shot reverse shot. It's not complicated composition at all. And the fact that after that, once we're in fletcher's headspace so to speak then after that we move out to the city and we have to transition into neiman's headspace i feel like that's what's jarring for me Uh i understand uh that this is going to be neiman's story but the shot should have been from inside the room as opposed to in the hall i get you no that's me i think that that, that is a fair mixed point you do have to kind of bend over backwards to see i would have to be like oh um you know obviously as he's pulling for this it's 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 neiman's hope that this man will come. Absolutely. Then but that's I, but fair. I, I, so I, fair. No, I don't... I, I do agree, me. though. I think that generally you would assume if that's a character and we turn around and that guy is where we last were, then we're in that guy's head. And you know, I will defend the idea, though, that this is a joint story at points. I do think that the, the, the par dynamic between the two is the real story. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I do believe that they want us to think about where both of these people are coming from. And it's more about the shared experience in their world. But it is contrasting heavily with how it focuses on Neiman in the next scene. So I do agree with you. I do. I think that that... Much of a mixed signal shows a little bit of lenience when it comes to focus, and I don't think they should have done that. I and and I would agree with you. A different establishing shot would have made all the difference because you'll still get that story down the line. You know, this is this is high nitpickery. 
I know it's nitpickery. One of the things that I really despised near the end as well, and he does this in, in La La Land as well, uh, is he's quite a fan of whip pans. Yeah. Uh, and the whip pans in Whiplash, I thought, didn't serve any... It, it just looked there corny There are as some hell. that really work, and some that I agree are just there for flair. Yeah. And those are the ones that during the last concert during Caravan, that when 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 he's waving his... When, when Fletcher's waving his fingers and all that stuff, yeah, and yeah. just that whip pan... I was like, don't do that. These guys are, 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 you, you can't show that they're not working together. They're working yeah. against each other, trying to work together. Well, and the way yeah. that they show Fletcher kind of like having the satisfaction of make, maybe have, having created his own Charlie Parker, like it's his business, like he's pushed. Yeah. I felt well, that that's what was, you're supposed to think, though. Yeah. I, I agree. I didn't like that, man. This I know. Absolutely. It's not. No, it's, like, it's, it's, it, and that's, I mean, absolutely. I don't think the story is that you're supposed to want this to happen okay all right. but you're supposed to see that whip pan duel like the batting of a fucking tennis ball to one another you know i get so that i get the idea behind it but i do agree it's a bit showy and not necessarily important you know it felt like look at what i could do whoa it's so well timed but uh we know that they're they're somewhat they have a dueling relationship I, and you would want from a character experience for Neiman to not be taking orders from this guy in his great climactic fuck you to him you know yeah and he literally uh, even says though, it while he's there even fuck though you. his fuck <laughs> you to him is to impress him really you know you think so absolutely no doubt about it you know it's that's what i mean he buckles but the batting back and forth isn't exactly what's happening you know they aren't Dueling, they are supposed to be dueling each other to an extent, but Neiman still wants that praise. So there's no, there's no wave there. It, it, it should be a little more precise, but I do think you get whip pans throughout the story, which are great, which are the ones where he's cutting the music and that jerk from the music, the order, the structure of, of, of what jazz is and what drums give to music. And he goes, ah. That's enough. You're out. You're not my not my time. So on and so forth. Not my tempo. You know, like yeah, not my tempo. <laughs> when he when he when he pulls it, the camera jerks with him, and that is unsettling to the audience. And we're supposed to feel that motion, that like stomach aching. No, no, I was getting into that. What the fuck's wrong? You know. So I think in those cases, those are expert. Those are brilliant. I, I just thought that the cinematography at the end was a little bit uh, choppier. Even the editing uh, at this point, I was like, okay, look, they're, they're dancing. They're going in unison. But at the same time, the vibe that I'm getting from Andrew and the vibe that I'm getting for Fletcher is one that's that's completely contradictory with what's actually being shown. Look at the language as well when it comes to Neiman actually going into his bubble, going into his world. It's actually back to the hallway again at the, mm-hmm. at the beginning of the film, which is okay. Now, the thing is, is that the way that that's set up, the lights are kind of tuned down. There's an overhead shot, you know, and then that's fine. I like the overhead shot because we can see uh, Teller playing. You know, he really practiced hardcore to be able to play these things. And I, mm. I'm, I, I'm all for showing him doing the moves and all that. The thing is, is that the, the whole sweat on, on the, on the symbols, uh, you know, and then the fact that there's a red light that's kind of echoing the fact that he, he used to be bleeding a lot when he was doing that, like all the, the blood and the sweat and, and the tears, and, like he's pouring his heart and soul onto the whole thing. Mm-hmm. We're in that bubble and to cut out, I feel like that's kind of one of the things where I'm like, okay, what am I supposed to be getting? I get we're in his bubble. Why is he reacting to Fletcher? Why doesn't he just stay there? Why is Fletcher, you know, when he comes to fix the symbol and all that, you can see that he's trying to help at this point. I get all that. But to me, it was just very confusing imagery. Is he really in a, in a trance? Why does he notice Fletcher in that case? Why isn't he just doing his thing? And then, you know, when Fletcher comes in and he says, okay, start slowing down the breed, bringing it in. He's trying to, you know, mm-hmm. rein sort of Andrew him. in yeah. and all that, which I thought that was cool. I, and then I was like, okay, how are they going to get to this? You know, I just thought that I wouldn't have wanted Fletcher to get that satisfaction. Obviously, you're you're going to come in and tell me that, that that's the point. I don't know if that's what you're going to say. <laughs> but uh, And because I was rooting for Andrew because I think Fletcher's an asshole. Of course. But I also course. think that Andrew... Andrew's an asshole. They are the both movie. assholes. You're totally right. No, that is exactly it. Uh, well, and and but, I think that you are supposed to want to side with Andrew a lot. Yeah. I, I think that uh, you you can't help but not want in an experience where you see a, a bully and a bullied. You know, you want the, the the victim. You want him to to excel to overcome. Yeah. But I I don't. That's not what the story is. You know, it's all not right. at all. And and I I mean I guess. If we had to get, like, when we're talking about the, the bigger thing, like, what I, what I really got from it, 
And mm-hmm. I think it's it's exciting because it's something everybody on some level goes through. Is is this this exceptionalism? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it's in our day to day lives. But I mean, that great binary. I think it really lays it up perfectly. I'll explain what exceptionalism is as well, just to sort of everybody knows we're on the same page. Exceptionalism is kind of like how we take the the differences, the uniqueness of something, and infer that that difference is what makes that thing superior. Mm-hmm. You know, so. For example, say somebody wanted to, uh, I don't know, brought up like a time period, like 60s America. They said it's an exceptional time period. There was no better time to be alive than the 60s. I've heard that before, you know, like because it had the greatest artists, the greatest activism, the coolest people, like 60s had a lot of cool fucking shit. But that's that's exceptionalism, you know, like that's that's raising the the minor points of something to such a to such a degree that it overshadows what is often the the mundane and the unexceptional that carries it all you know there might have been some unique elements to the 60s but also like 60s america it's too broad a category to make exceptional there's too many things that characterize it and there's not one definition for it so to say that that time period is was exceptional because of what made it because it just had all the right things going and that could never happen again it's just not true <laughs> so like the key kind of thing about exceptionalism is that it's super subjective and 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 exaggerative you know it, it exaggerates everything and it overlooks incremental and mundane factors you know, so an example that might pertain to Atlantic Screen Connection, we could say is 60s filmmaking. You'll hear this like, oh man, the greatest films in the world were made in the 60s. You know, what an exceptional time for filmmaking. We got the French New Wave, we got Kubrick. Fuck man, we'll never have the 60s again. Mm-hmm. You know, but of course, if you're looking at that and you're thinking like, it's because those people were around and at their prime at that time. And that's what made it so big. And that movement happened because you're ignoring like all the little things like that filmmaking had never been cheaper, for example, or like uh, that the studio system was was branching out and the old Hollywood way was dying. And so that led to a lot of, uh, you know, experimental filmmakers. You can easily like those are the mundane things, the boring things that really define the experience of being a filmmaker in the 60s and really contribute to why there was these sort of elements that were exceptional but people will focus on just the the exceptional part the unique parts and say that they were so unique uh that they they created the world that they were themselves because of their uniqueness not because of all the factors beneath it that made it unique thing is is that the united states has a a history what they call of american exceptionalism where they Mm. consider themselves to be best at everything and the way that they go about doing that is by berating and belittling everything around them to show how exceptional they are sure and that's one of the fundamental things at the heart of whipclash that i don't like is how neiman becomes the embodiment of american exceptionalism and how his want to be extraordinary mm-hmm. is by becoming like Fletcher and shitting on people. Yeah, And that yeah. to me is one of the things where you're like, if you look at the 70s in the United States, uh, the 80s especially under Reagan and all that, mm-hmm. you had this whole thing where, and just, just today, we're the greatest country in the world. I the mean, greatest like, country in the world. Yeah, and make America th- great again is is still exceptionalism, for example. It, it, that's exactly. And, and it's, it's dirty now. It's one of those things where it's all about me. And I, that, that comes to a, a fruition hardcore in La La Land for me, where I'm like, it's, a, <laughs> it's, Ryan Gosling's character is one of the examples of American exceptionalism where he, it's all about him, what he wants, how he does it, the way that he plays in the band when they're, they're covering 80s music and whatnot. Again, the mm-hmm. 80s, it's one of the times where exceptionalism was most powerful. He looks down on the rest of the band because what he's playing is not good. He's better than all of them. And that's the way he is. And we have the same thing in Andrew being pushed through by Fletcher. And, and I, again, that, that's just a philosophical conundrum that I have where I'm like, I can't agree with this because it's a, it's a tired message. It's unhealthy as well for me personally to try to get involved in it. And I understand that maybe that's not the movie's purpose and I'm lumping something onto it. No. But it's uh, a well, message that I'm like, maybe the Americans are like, oh, we get this, this, this really hardcore want to be mm-hmm. something exceptional. And you're like, but what's the cost? The cost becomes 
your sanity, it costs, becomes your family, the cost. And, and that's why one of the reasons why I didn't like the end where you see Paul Reiser's face through the doors. The fact that for his entire life, he saw his son very in a narrowed, narrow perspective. Mm-hmm. You know, and that, that's another thing where the shot to me communicated the fact that this guy is just a teacher. He didn't push himself to become the writer that he wanted to be. He has a very, very narrow worldview. And now he's mm-hmm. seeing his son on a wider stage, but through the small perspective that he has. And I was like, that is cheating something. That, that, that's <laughs> cheating someone out of, of something else. And I understand that. He, to me, his father was great. He, he tried to do his best to protect his son. And now he's seeing his son become something great. But at the same time, through those doors, through a very narrow perspective, the fact that he himself didn't push himself to become exceptional. And I had a hard time with that. It's interesting how we read things so differently. Sometimes, but it's around the same time. Well, first, uh, I'll I'll say about the American exceptionalism anyway. uh, That you're totally right. Uh, That is how that works. Uh, It doesn't have to be in so pointed a way. It doesn't have to be like put others down and climb above. It can be so. It can be so much subtler than that. You know, it could be literally the idea that we must make ourselves rise even over ourselves. You know, it's not even others, it's us. And that's where the band comes in a lot in Whiplash. I'll talk about that a bit. But exceptionalism thrives on creating examples of uniqueness and pushing them to their limits. Okay. So that, and in this crazy pursuit of exceptionalism, you know, Mm -hmm. and I'll get into like this weird cyclical fucking thing. It's a total disaster. But you're totally right. We are living in exceptionalist times. Uh, we have always been. Uh, but we are at, very, at the very moment in one of the most peculiar periods of time for exceptionalism because we were under the... In the Americas, we have the, the Donald Trump president who is uh, whose whole slogan was exceptionalism. Let's bring yeah. it back. And, we got the and, Russians. is the same thing. Cheating in the Olympics, trying to strive to find course, ways yeah. to politically you know, motivate people into doing other things. There's this UK exceptionalism. is exactly the same okay. with our Brexit idea is that we are we are better than Europe. Uh, and it's it's what makes us British that makes oh, us better right. than Europe. I hadn't you know? thought of that. Good, that's good that's point. where that comes from. You know, that's all exceptionalism. That's, and so we're living with it every day. And that's why, again, it's, this has, this film's come at a very good time. Uh, <laughs> because it, it not just pre- preempted all these significant burrowing down to, ex- uh, to exceptionalism. It's sort of, it's laid it all out very bare. I will agree with you to some extent though, just because of the way you keep, you read the things mm-hmm. is that it lays it out so bare that people could see it warp it into thinking that it's worth having right and i totally disagree with that okay i i I don't think that's the intention at all but we'll get into it so yeah exceptionalism paired with nationalism for example as we just said that leads us into these crazy different dangerous notions we get supremacy we get fucking violence we get hate against other people that's exactly where white supremacy comes from of course you know like uh, for example you look at uh, yeah (laughs) you know you look at britain and you go like Back in World War II, we were an island mostly of white people. And that's when, you know, we won wars. And that's when we had money. And you're like, oh, well, of course you're ignoring shit already. But sure, go ahead. And they're like, but the moment we got we got immigrants in, that's when, you know, that's when the job market went down and the, the, the population boomed to the point we can't sustain it. And it's like, that's not, those aren't correlating factors you're not, that's you're just exactly you're just but it's like but it's the whiteness that made you all so powerful was it <laughs> you know, like yeah. that's what they want to hear that's what exactly building on the backs is. of it's, others before it's what that. makes it's us just, unique ugh. is what makes us superior right you know? so it's, it's very it, dangerous rhetoric but anyway of course right it's insane <laughs> but that's what i mean like so what is an amazing topic to tell that story in not so pointed a way is fucking music, man. Music okay. is like a microcosm of exceptionalism. Mm-hmm. Every time you have a conversation about music, it is so subjective and it is so exaggerated about your subjective point of view that it can only be exceptionalism in some form, you know? So, mm-hmm. I mean, if you've ever had a conversation about which era of music you love the most, say, for example, I've had this conversation a million times, people love the early 90s, and they'll say, Kurt Cobain... The era-defining artist of the early '90s, you know, he really, he really summed up the feeling of the time. No, he didn't. 
No, he fucking didn't. He summed up the feeling for some people in small doses. Do you know what the people in the 90s were fucking listening to en masse? Whitney Houston, Brian Adams, all fucking Phil soul. Phil Collins, <laughs> boy bands, you know, early fucking gangster rap. The yeah. scene was massive. The music industry is not representative of things at all. It's it's it's, it's this just this weird alien beast no one knows how to handle. And, but people will point to it and say this was a trend that meant something, you know. And in mm-hmm. and some ways it does, you know. That's that's what I mean. Like people will point to things and say the times were exceptional because of the of the things. And music itself lives on a system, especially sort of school music, where mm-hmm. you do have to climb to a ladder to keep a keep a place. In a team, in a in a band, right? I do think that it is a perfect format for showing where exceptionalism forces this scenario onto people. With Whiplash, we kind of get two stories uh, with the binary between the person who craves and the person who creates. Mm-hmm. The first is an experienced tale of what it is like to chase exceptionalism. So that's exactly what you're talking about—the story you don't like. <laughs> Miles uh, Miles Teller's Neiman is a car crash waiting to happen, uh, so much so that they put in a fucking car crash. <laughs> But, you know, so we are, so we're, what I think is we're granted this outsider view with an insider lens, right? I think the movie makes a very clear point of giving us that love story that goes nowhere, you know, and the father who watches from the outside to a world he doesn't understand and can't, can't break through. He can't be heard. You know, that's what I see in that last image. Okay. That's that's us. We're supposed to be these people, not Neiman nor Fletcher. We're supposed to be uh, the the girl from the cinema. We're supposed to be the 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 writer who settled. We're supposed to see these people and we think, God, what fucking freaks, you know? We're and we get so many moments of this collapse. We get the, it, like that the the whole story builds to a breakdown by the end of the second act. That that the ending ends in such ambiguity that the, he he in his worst moments, still can't get the girl to come back to him. He's, oh, she's mad up with his new boyfriend. They don't, mm-hmm. She doesn't want to go to the jazz festival. You know, this This is the world going on without Neiman. This is him becoming one of these people because he's already chasing this pipe dream, right? So, and it's... What we do get is the insider lens because we can see how much it means to Neiman to get the thumbs up from the sociopath. You know? <laughs> You're like, oh man, he wants he wants that nod from Fletcher because it means something to him. But we're mm. at the same time being shown stuff that tells us he's a sociopath. <laughs> like, it's not supposed to mean anything. He's a nutcase, you know? Yeah. And, and from that, we're supposed to see at the end how twisted and horrible and chilling the entire... And the whole ending is supposed to give us a what will change after this point. You're supposed to imagine it because it ends at the end of this performance. What's going to change? Fucking nothing. Story continues. Neiman has spent the entire story suffering. He's been in misery and he's only gaining more negative values. While Fletcher imposes himself, goes down with him to seek this out, hurts everyone around him, drives a kid to fucking suicide, and then all might get what he wants. It's still not even... We don't even know if he gets what he wants, you know? We don't know if Neiman becomes some god amongst musicians. We just know he did a good performance. But we don't even get to see what the audience think of it. You know, we don't get the, the, the rousing... We just... It cuts when the song is over and we never see what happens. And it's like the world goes on. Chasing the dream in this first part of the story is a disaster. Exceptionalism gives you a pedestal to climb to. That is a miserable experience from start to finish... That people will, that will alienate you from everyone else, and you'll suffer the whole way and just suffer some more, which is insane. And we're, I think that's what we're supposed to get from Neiman's story. The other story is more systematic, how exceptionalism really works. So one must suffer, but one must make people suffer. On the odd chance, the unique can be spun as the final. So, and I think we give a, we get a really believable insight to a person or a personification of how that system works. With Fletcher, the belief that the next great jazz musician could never be discouraged is just carte blanche to destroy lives. You know, that's that's the excuse to create a, a, an atmosphere where you can put people down. And See, he would have hated The Last up. Jedi. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, that's what I mean. From that, we're seeing what the people above really do to the people beneath them. Mm-hmm. 
and what they're striving for isn't even a thing, you know? Right. Because we know exceptionalism exists in the real world, you know? I said, I mean, we know exceptional people exist. And we do advance, you know? Uh, we've got great actual stories, usually not like Whiplash, of people excelling. You know, the, I mean, the jazz musician they mentioned, I don't know much about jazz at all. You know, the, the story that inspired Fletcher to be well, the man they, he is. Yeah, well, that's Charlie Parker. Charlie Parker uh, Bird, okay? He's known as Yard Bird. And uh, there was a movie directed by Clint Eastwood. I don't know if it's... I haven't watched it in years, you know. That was the movie that kind of put... Um, oh, what's his name? What's his name? Forrest Whitaker. Uh, it put Forrest Whitaker on the map. Charlie Parker. But, I mean, th- there are exceptional guys in jazz you know I, like I, i'm i don't know much about it i like listening to it i like john coltrane i like miles yeah. davis you know thelonious monk or even the drummers if you want to go the drummers route then we've got max roach and art blakey i couldn't name any of their songs but i mean i know i have some of their the records here well, that you i can play imagine occasion, that but the, the exceptional guys the, 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 yeah exceptional guys and you can imagine that not all of them Went through the experience that Charlie uh, Charlie Parker went through, you know? And can I point out just one thing? Mm. I looked that up just to make sure. And that's historically inaccurate. Fletcher <laughs> just likes... Yes. Fletcher Perfect. likes telling Neiman that story. He says it... He tells him the story twice. Yeah, that's right. Right? And that's the funny thing. It's just a limited perspective that Fletcher has is that that's the story he chooses to believe in order to push people to excel. Right. But I, I, right. Like, I haven't looked up what the story was between Joe Jones and Charlie Parker. Or if he was laughed off stage mm-hmm. and all that. All I can say is that I remember looking it up and it said this, like, although Fletcher likes this story, it's historically inaccurate. And I was like, oh, well, there you go. Thank you very much. Well, I mean, <laughs> perfect. I, and it's funny. You should say narrow-minded because it is. But uh, yeah, no, I mean, it doesn't even limit itself to music, of course. I mean, you get crazy advances in science thanks to people, you know, like Charles Darwin and Stephen Hawking and Einstein. Tesla. <laughs> Tesla, yeah. You know, and these people, and often, interestingly, a lot of the time, these people forego the 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 system that, that wants them to be exceptional because they're so exceptional, they don't need it. You know, yeah. they'll drop out of school. They'll carve their own path because they are exceptional. You know, they don't need someone pushing them up. And often they probably would have been smothered had they went that route. You know, mm-hmm. that's exactly what the system is like. That's what that's what the system does. You know, it, it, it seeks the individual and wants to push them higher because mutually it should give them both exceptionalism. Yeah. But it, it doesn't work in twofold. One, you don't, it usually just causes the exceptional person to burn out. You know, mm-hmm. it causes them to to fucking crumple. And two, it puts everybody else down. <laughs> yeah. It immediately suppresses the actual other talent that amongst whom you might not know that someone is exceptional. But even if they aren't, they're usually pretty good you know, to yeah. do what they want to do and to, and to keep going. The good job atmosphere is a madman's. Uh, you know, it's, it's it's insane to think that that's the most harmful thing you can actually say to someone. <laughs> you know, I agree. Yeah, because that's what exceptionalism promotes: the idea that the other and unique is what carries us forward. But it's not true. Pointedly, not true. All the time, we make advances that are just pushed aside because the story isn't unique enough. You know. Mm-hmm. These people do make important things. These musicians, these scientists, these artists, fucking Olympians, they do make it without the pressure sometimes. You know, I mean, Olympians, you know, it's kind of like the worst scenario you could ever be in is to be a fucking Olympian. But I mean, yeah, I'm sure somebody's made it without fucking killing themselves inside. And I think it's, it's very telling. It's very exciting, in fact, because it's, it's such an insight to today. You know, it is not, Fletcher is nothing more than the hardline conservative nationalist value we, we live with. Yeah, absolutely. You know, pushing that individual sometimes unique way up in importance. It's an old school. Mothering the normative down, the necessary, the decent all get crushed. And I mean, it's a fucking downward spiral. Fletcher pushes the kids to breaking point just to find a factor that can at best inspire more kids to join into a race that leads to more breaking points. You know, like it's, it's a fucking, it's There's a, a kid that kills himself as a result. Yeah, exactly. John I mean, Casey, that's what I mean. you lose like, okay. more than you gain. And what do you gain, you know, for what you've lost, where if you had pushed all together at the same time, you could have loads of exceptional things, mm-hmm. but loads of exceptional isn't exceptionalist, you know? And that's what I mean. You have to suppress the mundane and, and the collective for the unique to be exceptionalist. 
And even if it doesn't make any fucking sense, even if everybody's doing really well and we're all moving forward, it's not moving forward enough unless one can do it, you know? Mm. That's what I mean. It doesn't, it doesn't, doesn't make sense. It's like a, uh, like a, a, what do you call them? Uh, Auroraboros, the, the, you know, the snake that eats its own tail. It's just yep. this cycle. Auroraboros. Yeah, yeah. Miserable cycle of chasing yourself. Absolutely. Uh, for what? So, I mean, and it's the same of any accomplishment. What does the uniqueness win us? Small boosts, small advantages. It's the same of how we ended up with Trump and with Brexit. The poor at the bottom of each chain have been told that America or Britain can be great again. Mm-hmm. Exceptional, in fact. Uh, and with that momentum, these chasers find only punishment. So the people who vote, the poor that voted for Trump are only going to be poor as a result. The uh, the poor that voted for Brexit are only going to be poor as a result. And the people who are forcing the chase, these manipulators, these Fletchers, keep on living exactly as before, perhaps emboldened by their new accomplishment to try the same again, you know, right, by right, pushing right. their narrative. They can, you can rise above their own exceptional worldview of themselves, but it's so narrow-minded and so unhelpful for the masses, it doesn't actually achieve anything. It's an insane person's point of view, but we live with it, you know? We're not talking about something that, that doesn't exist today, right. you know? We're talking about a film that looks at something that we, each and every one of us, have experienced from things like products, to school, to what we read in the news, to if you've ever been in a fucking sports team, you know, like, all of this, like, parents, you ever meet parents that, like, are so hard on their kids about grades, you can only have the highest grades, it's not good enough to just be really educated, you have to be, like, number one in the school, or else you've fucked up, you know, and I know people have burned out exactly like this, you know, I've known people I went to school with who were the, were the, the gray chasers and you know not only were they miserable year in year out they also had to repeat tests because when they got to the test they crumpled under the pressure even though they knew all the shit they crumpled so much that they had to do it again and again until they got the grade that they needed you know that's insane and that's what happens when you when that atmosphere descends on you and when you know when people invite you into the cycle you know you just you're constantly eating yourself so whiplash in my head it's it's this great representation of exceptionalism because it's a horror story. It's and it's funny because we we all know this story too because it's a chosen one story, but it's a f- accurate chosen one story. This is what it's like either to be chosen or wanting to be chosen. You are going to fucking bleed and you're going to sweat and not in the it'll get shit done way. You know we're not supposed to believe that this is worth having. We're supposed to believe that this has been a fucking miserable experience. Okay, and, and that. People are shit to each other, and that it just wears everybody down and gets nothing done. <laughs> That's what I mean. I think Whiplash does such a good job at showing that relationship that it kind of stands alone, and that it's kind of it reimagines the stories we all grew up with. So you're telling me it's a cautionary tale, then? I guess yes. In a way, it does, yeah, it cautions people because we are the outsider, and we're looking at these insiders suffer. We are supposed to not follow them, but it's also more a sort of it's almost like a documentary you know mm-hmm. you would say you wouldn't say documentaries or cautionary tales you just call them insights it's an insight it's just that look look at the message that they always send out most of the time if you work hard you can achieve anything yeah ne- neiman andrew is is the 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 epitome of working hard and trying to earn that yeah exactly and you look at what he's trying to earn and it's the pettiest most pathetic shit you've ever seen but people might might look at it and go but he does play a really good drum solo. So Fletcher was right. So they do have a happy end, uh, ever after. And the exactly. cut to black is, oh, I feel relieved it all worked out. To me, that's a dangerous message. That is the worst <laughs> thing you could ever possibly fucking say. <laughs> but you're totally right. That's that's what I, I'm always afraid of when it comes to interpreting films. Right. Is that it can just be... If your intention doesn't come through as the individual who wrote this fucking thing and that people are walking away from it and going, I want to be a drummer now. Uh, you know, then you fucking failed. You have just, that is a disaster. <laughs> that is, and, and that's where, that's why I came in with the sort of, also at the very start where I was like, did he, did he mean the story I just described? I No, we're watching it different ways. Very much. The fact that we watch it different ways. It's good. I like that. It's exactly, but that's exactly what makes me worry about what Chazelle, because it makes, it seems to me (laughs) so clear that this is a warning. This is a, this is the worst. 
I don't know but, because he followed it up with he, La La Land, but that, and he doubles that's, down on that's the other characters. The danger. That's the most. That is the worst thing. Exactly. Context. History later showed us that this man loves him some fucking ex- exceptionalism. He loves chasing the dream. He loves romance, and he knows that it's shit. But he still. At the end of La La Land, you get that moment where, like, oh, but wasn't it? Wasn't the romance all kind of worth it? Weren't we double? Didn't we get the best of both worlds? I mean, it's a it's a bad ending, but wasn't it a beautiful one at the same time? And yeah. you're like, it fucking was not. It fucking was the worst fucking thing. <laughs> and you're trying to tell me that I was supposed to enjoy this? Are you insane? Um, and that exactly that the way La La Land goes makes me go. If the intention wasn't 100% behind fuck exceptionalism, then this film is a disaster. Anyway, and I don't want to go out on a limb and say that that's exactly what the message is. The thing is, is no, that for of me, course. I was like, eh. But, I mean, we could keep going on that. What I would like to do is just to lighten things up a little bit. I'd like to talk about the things that I did like. Great. Two scenes that I really enjoyed, or two, two, two shots, I would say. One scene in the shot that I really, really like in the film. And I know that's not much. There are a couple other Mm. things. I like the interactions between the characters and all that. I love how after being able to kind of perform, uh, he gets the courage to go talk to the girl. I think that's great. I think that that Mm. that goes Mm. to show sometimes that a little bit of a victory can go a long way. And so to to perform at a level where you are becoming comfortable and getting a little bit more self-confidence, you know, and a boost of your self-esteem, that's that's kind of fun. An entry-level pressurized scenario can push you i think that's that the film does a really good i mean it's when it goes to the extremes we see that it fucking sucks but you're right you know like i felt that when it starts out there was a level there where fletcher was when he eases his eases him in that you're like Mm -hmm. fuck yeah man you know that's and i think that's to the film's credit it does it's supposed to want us to see that that's the the way it was supposed to end you know Mm -hmm. he did it that was the end of the story, and 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 then we get the the horror show that is what happens when you you keep going, exactly. You, know, you keep pressurizing, but I think you're totally right. I think it does a great job of showing. Uh, there's a point here where we're like, I, I I'll cut off. I'm great. Happy yeah. story over. <laughs> yeah, then I'll, I'll I'll talk about the camera angle that I really liked in the film, and then I'll talk about the scene that I find can be really great and also very problematic, mm. depending <laughs> on how you decide to read it. Uh, One of the camera angles that I really like is the fact that uh, just before he goes to the first competition, the camera angle is somewhat like the beginning of The Dark Knight, where it's actually from behind him at a low angle looking up. So we have Neiman actually kind of, uh, you see this giant building that's this towering pinnacle of music kind Mm -hmm. of staring down on him to show just how difficult... This, this, this rise to fame is going to be for him. And mm-hmm, I was like, that's mm-hmm. a really clever way of showing the monumental task that, that she's like, that, that Andrew has to go through in order to prove himself as a, as a, as a world class jazz drummer. And exactly. I thought that was really great. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, no, the, absolutely. the scene that I like, and I also, depending on how you decide to read it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because let's, let's, let's face it. Okay. Jazz is part of African American culture. Yeah. The big band music, and this is, this is, I'm just repeating words that were taught to me when I was taking my African American literature class when I was studying mm-hmm. in university. Big band music, like my teacher to him was the white man stealing and kind of muddying a little bit of what jazz was. And so he sure. kind of mm-hmm. poo poos that style of music quite a bit. So Benny Goodman and, 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 and Glenn Miller and all that shit, that's all crap to him. He listens yeah. to Miles. He listens to Coltrane. He listens to, you know, Dizzy Gillespie and all that stuff. And then fine. That's great. They're all, they're all great. Now, the thing is, is that the scene that I'm talking about is the, uh, the cinema scene where, uh, Andrew goes to meet his father. And they're sitting inside the movie theater. Now, the shot is from the outside, and it says Rififi. Rififi is, is a Jules Dassin film from 1955, and it's a heist right. movie. Now, this is the funny thing. is that If we have a heist film inside of a jazz film, we could literally start seeing that this white drummer is actually stealing something from the black community. And I was like, okay, I don't think that Chazelle wants me to read that that way. I think he wants me to read it that he's a really much a guy who really <laughs> likes French films because he doubles down on it in La La Land which, with Umbrellas of Cherbourg, which mm-hmm. literally steals from there as well. He just, yeah, Chazelle wants to prove he knows things. He knows French movies. <laughs> yeah, now, uh, and there's a romantic quality to that. Now, the thing is, is that one of the things that I really, really liked is the fact that uh, Paul Reiser... Uh, pours the raisinettes inside the popcorn, mm-hmm. right? So you have these black dots 
inside <laughs> like a like a white yellow fucking exactly white yeah, and yellow yeah, type yeah. of thing the way you can read that saying is that it can be really racist or it can be <laughs> really empowering <laughs> okay i'll okay. go i'll go with the racist one first but then i'm gonna right. say that that's not the way i choose to see it the racist way is that neiman like they pour the chocolate in there and it is a racial slur to call a black man a raisin but the fact that neiman says i'm going to eat around them is that he's going to cannibalize whatever the hell is jazz and i'm going to forget where the hell it comes from because my hero is buddy rich not yeah. a black guy oh yeah i can totally say that yeah and okay. i was like <laughs> oh shit this can come off as fucked up. Now, the other way I choose to see it, however, is through, uh, there's a comedian that I like. I think, I don't know, I don't want to attribute names, so I won't say it. The thing is, is that he says, uh, he hates jazz because mm. he doesn't understand it. I, I think it's Paul F. Tompkins. I'm not going to put words in his mouth, but I think it was Paul F. Tompkins who says okay, he hates okay. jazz because he doesn't understand it. And he says at one point during the bit, he says, oh, it's the notes that they're not playing that I have to listen to, which I thought that was really funny because he says he doesn't understand the whole cacophonous type thing that's going on because they're all playing solos at the same time, essentially. Mm-hmm. What it is. Mm-hmm. And so when Neiman said, when Andrew says that he's going to eat around it, I figured that that's him also. If you take the, 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 the raisins as these, these, um, these notes, on, on a on a grid for for uh, um, you know uh, oh, yes, what do they call course. it? Like they don't the, what's the, like a, the scale. The scale. The, there you go. Yeah, so yeah. the notes on the scale. The idea that there's going to be so many other different people that are going to be playing those notes, yes. but he's going to have to play around them. He's going to eat around them. Okay, so and that's a sly reference ch- that he, just to sort of confirm that he's jazz in and out of life. Exactly, and so that by the time he ends the movie, he says, "I'll cue you in." That's him being the popcorn and trying to bring in all the other guys into play with okay. him. And so I was like, that's a kind of clever way of looking at it. He doesn't want what's sweet. He's going for the sweet and salty taste. But at the same time, he doesn't want the sweet taste because he prefers the salt, the, 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 the stuff that's going to be part of him. The way yeah, that he's yeah. the white guy kind of doing whatever the hell he's doing with his drums. Now, that's me reading way into a scene. Yeah, absolutely. But it's, I mean, yeah, when I've watched, I've watched that scene twice and I just thought it was really... Just a really cute character moment. I, I like the, the, the dad. It's a very human thing that like some people like their popcorn in such weird ways and that the dad yeah, is, it could pours also, his chocolate into the popcorn. I'm like, oh, you're a gross it, human being. But, but like, it, could also be, it could also be the parting of the ways of the father and the son if you wanted yeah, to. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, you used to like no, these exactly. sweet things, it, it but serves now you're just a salty really fucker. Neatly. Yeah, yeah. You know? But I mean, the thing is, is that when I was watching the scene and the fact that they're watching a heist film, I was like, okay, you're sending so many mixed messages to me. I was like, okay, so is this, is this going to be like a um a heist film where like at the end of the film you know he he he's the one that's going to be stealing the show you know he's that diamond that they're looking for yeah, in he's Riffy getting away with it. Uh-huh. And, and he's gonna die on stage you know or something like that i don't know exactly if he's gonna go through his heart attack or whatever i, I haven't watched Riffy in a long time but I, I remember seeing it and going okay that's an interesting reference another french film but it's just so open to interpretation because it's a yeah. very fun scene but at the same time you're like okay Maybe not in this film. Exactly. Maybe be a little more careful. <laughs> you know, seeing is that we are talking about music that's kind of been appropriated by white culture uh, in, in a not elegant way, I'll say. Um, you know, <laughs> no although shit. I do, I'm not saying, I'm not shitting on big band music. I like big band. I, I think it sounds fantastic, you know, and it gave into mm. the swing music and stuff like that, which is to me another form of dancing that was kind of, of appropriated. But at the same time, I mm. really, really enjoy watching people go through uh, the motions of those, those, those types of dances, you know, and then let themselves carried away by that music. All I'm saying is that the scene <laughs> itself, the scene itself is a fun one that you can pick apart where you're like, uh-huh. okay, if we're talking about jazz and we have a white guy playing jazz, this scene can be read in a variety of ways just because of mm. those fucking raisins. And I was like, <laughs> I don't know. I love that. I, I mean, it just, it, it all, all together, it just continues to confirm my fears. <laughs> like, <laughs> but Giselle is this enigmatic looking person who makes crazy potentially well-meaning or potentially venomous films and i can't tell which and that scares me so to that end i think we could probably conclude our 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 our, our fucking conversation on whiplash <laughs> whatever yeah. this was I, I just wonder like we put it out there and how do you walk away from it we're still not the wiser you know no how would you surmise what people should take from whiplash i suppose is an interesting thing 
Oh, man. Listen, I, like I said to me, it's a good movie. The only thing is, is that it's a scary one to me. It's a scary one <laughs> yeah. because the message is very muddled. What are we mm-hmm. supposed to get from it? The fact that they come together at the end and it seems like they're actually working in unison to me is a very dangerous precedent to set when it comes to pushing individuals to the brink of insanity. Uh, I don't think that I think that also, like I said, the blood, sweat and tears motif is is a cliche. It's a tired message. It's unhealthy, like I'll repeat. And I think that uh, for, for a society that 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 really is one that's not of inclusion right now. Mm-hmm. The the exceptionalist discourse that comes from there should start to wear out. And I think that Whiplash could serve as an example of like, oh, it's not just about me. It has to be about everyone else. It's not about yeah. him. It's yeah. about him and the band. It's not about Fletcher. Mm-hmm. Fletcher is so much trying to be like Joe Jones that he forgets that it's not about him. It's about making these others in- exceptional. He can't exactly. see that for some way. He's, there's, there's a sort of arrested development on his mm-hmm. part, and mm-hmm. he seems to be inflicting that on other individuals. Their lives stop and start and stop with music, and there's so much more to see. And that, that, that discourse, the one that I have right now, would be one that if I look at a, a film like Little Miss Sunshine, the father in there would say, that is the language of a loser. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? And that, that's <laughs> yeah. the dangerous thing that he's, he was called out. Little Miss Sunshine is a very great example of that pushing that, that exceptionalist rhetoric and have it come from a guy who can't even personify it. You know yeah, what I mean? Absolutely. And so, but that would be that. That would be to me would be the language of losers. That's what I'm speaking right now to someone who sees that movie as that's what success looks like. Yeah, you're totally right. I mean, I I do think I edge towards still saying that there's so much in the imagery here that we're supposed to see this as a horror story. Mm-hmm. You know, an inverse poor ending to the chosen one, you know, archetype. Yeah, and okay. It has to be well-meaning, you know. But here's where people are going to like, that's art, man. You know, doesn't want to. You soften the edges, and it's art. You know, it doesn't tell you what it means. It, it let's that's it figure fine. it like, out. I yeah. enjoy, I enjoy discourse as much as anyone. That's why we have this fucking show because right. we didn't do it because we hate discourse. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, we don't do we don't fucking meet up on Skype every fucking month <laughs> just to complain. <laughs> so, yeah, it's like God, I hate talking to people. You know, yeah, only especially sometimes. you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, I I am in favor of that. I like art not giving us all the answers but sometimes you can muddy the water so much that intention doesn't shine through and that's enough for me to be wary towards whiplash uh sing its praises absolutely i'll still watch it again and again i still think it's an excellent film when viewed with my lens one thing i forgot to bring up that i'm gonna just shoot out there if you want to take it down with your lens as well and i think that Mm. that would be really good is that these are the dangers of of, uh hero worship yeah that's exactly putting people on a pedestal to the point where it becomes blinding Mm mm-hmm that, that no, anything well, else other than that, you know, like... I ask again, what purpose does that serve? You know, that's yeah. all to do with exceptionalism. What does those unique values really give everyone, you know, except the ones involved with the unique values? And to them, it just gives them shit. So mm. who wins in this? It's a lose-lose venture. What the fuck? <laughs> yeah. You know, so yeah, hero worship, you're entirely right, is, is a fucking bum deal for all involved. Again, you could bring it to celebrity culture as well that we, again, all live with. That's all exceptionalism. We live with it every day and we all fucking suffer for it. But yeah, I mean, I mean, is, is this our most political sounding episode? <laughs> I, it's one of my most and the one that I've enjoyed the most in a long time. Yeah, well, I mean, so, that's, yeah, that's, I that's the start to our season four, anyway. Yeah, this is good. All right, man. So shall we close this out, sir? Let's do it, man. All right, thank you guys for tuning in to uh, the opening season four. Hope you guys enjoyed the discussion. This is this was a fun one for me. Least yeah. smiling, so it looks like it's a fun yeah. one for him, too. So much fun. Jesus Christ, what a fucking shit Why didn't we do this before? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <I know>. uh, <laughs> Congratulations to Mark Perez for uh, for winning the uh, the uh, the giveaway and all that there. Yeah, so the giveaway, yeah, absolutely. As a shout out, we haven't had a chance to do that, so I don't even know when this episode's going to come out. So probably he'll have received this by now. Yeah, received uh, it, he'll have binned it. Yeah, he'll have thrown most of the stuff out. Uh, but yeah, so uh, anything you want to plug, Lee? I'm I'm on a new podcast. I'll start that. Uh, I'm yeah, on a podcast with Kevin Brackett called The Real Trivial Podcast. 
which is uh, essentially uh, unnecessary conversations about things you don't need to know. And it's really a fun concept. It's another one that we're, uh, we just pull a card from the 2005 version of Trivial Pursuit so that we don't kind of get <laughs> harassed by them. You're not allowed to use our questions or anything like that. So 2005, you know, it's not a big deal. If you guys want us to come up with our own questions, fine, we'll do it. But at the same time, uh, that's it. We go in blind. We have no idea. We pull the card, we answer the question, and then we talk about that as best we can. If we know it, we know it. If we don't, we don't. And then we'll just go on for about an hour on, on whatever the hell, uh, you know, we can go to. So it's just basically this. God, I love this concept. I, I can't understand <laughs> it enough. I think it sounds like so much fun. So is it going to be on iTunes? I don't know yet. Like I said, maybe the first couple episodes will be out by the time this is out. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'll put a link, you know, they'll, they'll see this tweeted anyway. So anything you want to plug, sir? No, uh, you can, you, I, I'm, no, I'm not even on Twitter these days. So you can you can follow me on Instagram at Lee Paul Brady. Uh, you can follow the show on Twitter at Atlantic SC. I'm also on Instagram a little bit more now at Jason B. Michael, but also follow the show at Atlantic SC podcast on Instagram. Cool. So anyway, that's it for us this week. We hope you guys enjoyed the show. Thank you for listening. And Chelsea, I hope uh, we didn't anger you too much. I didn't anger you too much. <laughs> I think Lee was a little bit more on your side. We love you very much. We'll see you guys next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. No, like uh, I'm hoping that it, like if we go with Chazelle and, and his his just as a follow up to La La Land, I, I'm hoping that I'm not going to get a Baz Luhrmann like take on the moon landing where he's going to be framing this through like Melies's lens of the voyage to the moon where it's going to be like a you theatrical production. You are absolutely production. <laughs> asking for the wrong... This is exactly what's going to happen. You've already nailed it. You've already put the fucking hammer on the fucking nail's head. This is it. We're getting jazz in space and that's going to be... For fuck's sake... <laughs>